Let's pray. Father, we trust that your goodness will lead us all of our days and will lead us home. So we ask just now as we come to think about what your word is saying to us today, that you in your goodness would lead us and speak to us and guide us. In Jesus' name, amen. What is the most unexpected thing that has ever happened to you? Maybe you've bumped into somebody uh, famous unexpectedly. Maybe you've achieved something you thought that you could never achieve. Maybe you did better in that exam or that test than, than you thought you would. Maybe you won one of those competitions. You won a holiday or something. Something completely unexpected. For me, in this past week, I had a very unexpected occurrence. I was working in the minister's room, and as I sometimes do, I, I wandered out here um, to, to just you know calm down and play the piano for a little bit. And as I sat down on that chair, I looked up to the balcony, and what I saw just right in front of where Andy's sitting there on the edge of the balcony was a squirrel <laughs> looking straight back at me. And I have to say, when I trained for the ministry, one thing they didn't teach me to do, and one thing that I never expected I would be doing, was chasing a squirrel around the church armed with nothing but a broom shaft. However, the squirrel isn't here. It, I managed to encourage it to go out the door. But as we come this week to, to Acts chapter 2, and, and we see everything that happens here, I wonder if the disciples expected it to happen just the way it did. I mean, these were people who surely had learned to expect the unexpected. I mean, the very first time that most of them met Jesus was with that miraculous catch of fish when Jesus told them to cast their nets out even though they'd been out all night and had caught nothing. And then they had seen all of those miracles, the water turning into wine, healing people who couldn't walk or see or hear, raising Lazarus from the dead, walking on water, calming the storm. I mean, the list goes on. How many things had these men seen that surely they would never have expected to see when they were just fishermen? And then they watched him die. But as we read last week, after his suffering, he showed himself to these men and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. So these were guys who had learned to expect the unexpected. Surely they expected things that nobody else would have. And Jesus actually told them what was going to happen next. Again, we read the words last week, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes in you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Jesus told them you will receive power. So surely they must have been expecting it. The word that we translate as power is actually the, the same word in English that we get the word dynamite from. So the disciples probably were expecting something big. They'd seen Jesus alive after death. Jesus told them they would receive this explosive power from on high. But I'm not sure they could have quite expected what was about to happen. We read in chapter, or we read in chapter one, we didn't read it last week, but the number of believers who were together at this time was something in around 120 and they were all meeting together in one place, 
And suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind fills the place where they are. The Spirit falls on them in what seems like tongues of fire. They were all able to speak in other languages as they're filled by the Spirit. Then you have Peter's sermon to the people. And the Spirit is at work. I mean, the people don't sort of think, who's he? They don't start throwing stones at him for being a blasphemer. No, the the Spirit works in the hearts of those who hear. They're cut to the heart. They say, what shall we do? And then there are conversions and baptisms, about 3,000 added to their number. They went from a congregation about the size of Ravenhill to 25 congregations the size of Ravenhill, just like that. You know, when they were told they would receive power from on high, maybe they, they did expect a few miracles. But I don't know if they would have expected 120 people speaking in tongues. Maybe they might have expected that their number to grow a wee bit, but from 125 to over 3,000. But as we look at these amazing events a couple of thousand years ago, I suppose we have to ask the question, well, what, what does this mean for us? Because we started this series in Acts, Mission Unstoppable, we've called it. And we thought last week about how Christ's call to be witnesses to all the nations is a call to us as well. And it includes reaching out to the ends of our streets here in East Belfast. Marty mentioned that in the new year, um, we're going to be focusing as a congregation together on evangelism. And that's why we're studying the book of Acts. So if all that is for us, well then what about these events at Pentecost? If we're going to be witnesses for Jesus, and if we're going to receive power from on high, how come these events at Pentecost seem so far removed from the earthly reality of being a Christian as we know it? If you've ever tried to share about Jesus with someone, I'm sure it looked quite different to what we read about in Acts chapter 2. But are we doing it wrong? Should we expect the dramatic when we evangelize? I mean, there are a lot of different people who originally come from lots of different countries living in the streets around here. Should we all try and get them out onto the street for a street party or something and and expect the Holy Spirit to fall on us with tongues of fire so that we can speak to them in different languages to show God's power so that Marty can stand up and preach to them and we'll see thousands converted? Maybe you think like some of the skeptics on that day, that I've had too much wine, if I think that. But in case you're worried, I think the answer is no. But it does raise some questions for us. Why, why isn't this the norm if we as Christians have the Holy Spirit? And if we're not seeing dramatic things like this, do we have the Spirit at all? And if we do, well then, where is the power that we're meant to have received from on high? How does the Spirit help us in evangelism if he doesn't do what he did in Acts 2? And why did he do what he did in Acts 2? That's a lot of questions, I appreciate. But what they all amount to, I think, is a need for us to understand how the Spirit of God works to bring salvation, really throughout history. I've already mentioned, uh, even before we started reading in Acts last week, that, that we'll see things through this book, like miracles that we should not expect to see routinely today. So let's have a look together at how we see the Spirit at work in Scripture, and then we'll, we'll come back to Acts 2. I think the Bible tells us really of three different periods of time 
where God particularly displays his power through signs and wonders and miracles. And all three of those times are times when God is saving his people. Those three times are the Exodus in the Old Testament, in the life of Jesus when God saves us from slavery to sin, and then the third time is still to come in the new creation and the return of Jesus when we are finally and fully saved from sin. Now, that obviously doesn't mean that miracles don't happen in the Bible at other times. They do. But each of these events brings with it a time period when signs and wonders and miracles are particularly concentrated. In the Exodus, you have loads of examples performed by the Spirit through Moses. You know, his staff turning into a snake, water being turned to blood, the ten plagues, locusts, boils, the the Passover, the miraculous parting of the Red Sea, manna and quail in the desert, water coming from a rock. And as God completes that work and establishes the nation of Israel in the promised lands, these signs and wonders continue through as the people conquer the city of Jericho miraculously and of God's guidance and blessing and miraculous help in establishing Israel. Then as Jesus comes to save his people from sin, that's obviously accompanied by all kinds of miracles. I couldn't begin to list them all, from the virgin birth to healing people, feeding 5,000 people, raising the dead, his own resurrection. His life is full of miracles. And just as in the Old Testament, God used signs and wonders not only to deliver his people, but to establish them as a nation, so in the New Testament, God uses signs and wonders to save his people and then to establish them as the church. And that's why we see all these miraculous things happening with the apostles in the book of Acts. It was a special period of time when the Spirit worked in this way. And then you have the the new creation and Jesus' return. That hasn't happened yet, but we anticipate a recreation of all things, bodily resurrection, destruction of evil, a new world established. And I think one of the reasons that the Spirit works in these ways at at these kinds of times is because it's a way of proving that God is at work. It authenticates what his servants on earth are doing. You know, if Moses had just gone to Pharaoh in Egypt and said, God told me to say to you, let my people go, he wouldn't have gotten very far. It was a hard enough process with the signs and wonders, but that was their purpose, to show that it was really the work of God that Moses was doing. That's what God says to Moses. He says it a few times, but here's Exodus 7 and verse 5. When I raise my powerful hand and bring out the Israelites, the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. That was their purpose. And this was also the case with Jesus. It proved who he was, that he was authentic, that he was the real deal. And this is actually what he says to the Jewish religious teachers. He says, but if I do it, even though you may not believe me, believe the miracles that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. The miracles proved that Jesus was from God. When God saves his people, especially when it involves him doing something new, he authenticates it with miracles. And that's what happens in Acts chapter 2. Peter is able to preach and he's able uh, to point people to the prophet Joel and back to David as he appeals to the crowd. 
And if that's all he was doing, well then the miraculous events probably wouldn't have been necessary. But he was also telling the people about something new. He was telling them about scriptures that hadn't been written yet about Jesus. And to show that his message was really from God, that it was authentic, God the Holy Spirit performs these miraculous signs. Now you might say, well, well, what about the other miracles that happen right through the Bible? You know, we sang earlier on about Elijah and Ezekiel and others. We do see through the Old Testament all kinds of miracles, fire falling, people raised from the dead, dry bones becoming his flesh. They are a lot less frequent than in the time of Moses and indeed in the life of Jesus. They do happen. And the reason that they happen again is to show that these people are prophets. And again, that God shows his power through these to, to show that these people are from him. And the words that they have to say as prophets are words from him. But we do notice in these parts of the Bible, if you read Kings or Chronicles, for example, that whole generations go by and there isn't as much as a whisper of a miracle. So it's certainly not as concentrated. And that's how it is through the Bible. People that are from God through the Bible see signs and wonders. Noah, Abraham, Elijah, Elisha, the apostles. And at times when God shows his salvation, these are particularly concentrated. And at other times when they're not, they serve to show who, God is, who, who is from God sorry, and who isn't. So people like Elijah and Isaiah, for example, miraculous things happen in their lives, authenticate what they're saying and indeed what they're writing it shows us that what they wrote is scripture. It's God's truth. And that's how it is with the apostles in Acts. The Spirit does miraculous things through them because broad, God has brought them salvation in Jesus and he's working through them as the church is established. He's working through them to show that what they say and then what they would go on to write is God's truth. It's scripture. And we don't see miracles just as regularly today simply because that work is complete. When all these other things were happening, God was still revealing himself. He was revealing his plan to save us. But now that the work of Jesus is finished and we have the record of that in the scriptures, God's revealing of himself and his plan to save is complete. Here are the opening verses of the book of Hebrews. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. The son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. I realize that's quite long, but two things just to point out quickly. Firstly, the sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. In other words, God's revelation is complete in Jesus. There's no need for any more. And secondly, after he provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. Now today in the 21st century, many of us um, do our work sitting down in front of a screen. But through most of human history, this wasn't the case. You know, it was manual work, it was labor, it was farming. It was work you did on your feet. And when you were finished, you sat down. You sat down at the end of the day. And Jesus sat down when his work was complete. 
His work of salvation was done. He sat down at the right hand of God. The work finished. The Spirit worked through the apostles in a dramatic way with signs and miracles so they could build the church and write about the complete work of Jesus Christ. So, I suppose we've done the work of explaining why we see the Spirit work in this way in Acts 2 and why we don't necessarily see those things happen today. But we're still left with a question, aren't we? How does the Spirit then work today? If we have this power from on high that we've received to be Christ's witnesses, how does that happen today? Well, over the centuries, the church has defined the way the Spirit works essentially into two different categories, and they're very, very helpful for us to think about. They are the ordinary and the extraordinary or the extraordinary. So the ordinary ways the Spirit works are the usual ways, I suppose, that he works. They're known as the ordinary means of grace, um, the ordinary uh, or usual means or, or ways that the Spirit works to show us God's grace, whether for the first time or for the thousandth time. And the shorter catechism, which you'll not hear me quoting too often, but it, it puts it like this. The outward and ordinary means whereby Christ communicates to us the benefits of redemption are his ordinances, especially the word, sacraments, and prayer, all which are made effectual to the, to the elect, that's his people, for salvation. So the word, which is the Bible, the sacraments, baptism and communion, and prayer. And we believe that the word does this through both reading it and preaching it because the spirit is at work as we do that. Second Timothy 3.16, all scripture is God-breathed, is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. In Scripture, the, the Spirit of God is also known as the breath of God. So if, if all Scripture is God-breathed, then it's the Spirit who speaks those words. And the reason why sacraments and prayer are included alongside the Bible as ordinary ways in which God works in us are because we find them in Scripture. Baptism and the Lord's Supper are activities that we learn about in Scripture, and so we believe that when we do them, the Lord is present by His Spirit. And when and the way that we pray is directed by Scripture too. Whether we're praising or lamenting or offering up our requests and petitions, all of those things are directed by Scripture. And so we believe that as we do those things, the Spirit is at work in us. So these are the ordinary ways, the usual ways in which God works by His Spirit by in communicating His grace to us. Now there is also the category of the extraordinary these are things that are extraordinary. They usually don't happen, but they definitely can happen because God is God and God is alive and God is powerful, so they, they definitely can happen. People can be healed. People will have dreams. There are lots and lots of stories out there. Um, if you go and, and look up anything like Open Doors or some of those organizations working in other parts of the world, particularly the Middle East, of people having dreams and coming to Christ. But it's not just far away. Um, I actually heard a story recently of a woman in East Belfast who knew nothing about church, who knew nothing about Jesus or Christianity, and she turned up at a Presbyterian church within a couple of miles of here, and she said that she had a dream that told her she just had to come to church, and so she did, and she's still going as far as I know. Now, that's not how God ordinarily works 
but he can and he does. And so we need to be careful not to overstate the ordinary so much that we forget that God is God and can do extraordinary things. Sadly today, I think some Christians don't really expect the Spirit to do anything. And equally sadly, some churches expect the extraordinary all the time and they expect it to be the norm. And neither of these things are great. Obviously, if you don't expect the Spirit to do anything, you might miss what He is doing in your midst. And if you expect the dramatic and the extraordinary all the time, I think you're actually disobeying Scripture because in in 1 Corinthians, we see that the church in Corinth was a bit obsessed with speaking in tongues. And Paul says that that isn't good. He says it's far better even to speak one word that folk can understand and come to faith than a, a thousand words in a tongue that they can't understand. We need to keep the the two categories in proportion, the ordinary and the extraordinary, but we do need both. God speaks to us through his word and communicates truth from his word to us through the sacraments and through prayer, but God is also well capable of the miraculous. So if that's how the spirit works, what does the task look like? As we finish today, I just want us to think briefly about this. And and there are three things I want to draw out of what we read in Acts 2. Firstly, the task of being witnesses is for all Christians, not just a select few. It's not just the job of the minister or the assistant minister or the young life worker or the woman's worker. Yes, it, it is our job too, but it's a job for everyone. The job of being witnesses to the world is the job of the church. And so the gift of the Holy Spirit is for the church. If you look again at verses 2 and 3 of Acts chapter 2, suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven. It filled the whole house where they were sitting. Not just, you know, the the little area around Peter, James, and John, or even, even the 12, but the whole house where all 120 of them were. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. Not some of them, all of them. It's our job, and of course that does include me, but but it's our job. And the gift of the Spirit allows it to happen. It's for all of us. And it's not just that the Spirit is given to all believers to help them in their task, but the Spirit enables us to reach everyone to reach all people. It enables us to do marvelous things. It enables us to reach people who we might deem too difficult to reach. Now, that doesn't mean that they will all respond positively to us, but we can witness to them nonetheless. Verse 5 tells us that on that day of Pentecost, there were staying in Jerusalem God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. And verse 6 tells us that each one, all of them, heard the message in their own language. Luke seems very keen to stress this to us, that each of us receives the Holy Spirit and the message is for everyone. The words all, every, and each, they crop up in verses 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, and 12. So the Spirit enables the church to reach everyone. But as I mentioned, not everyone will respond positively, and that, of course, does have the power to discourage us. It might make us feel like we're not the ones to take on the task. Some people in Jerusalem thought that the apostles had been drinking wine, even though it was only nine o'clock in the morning. And if you're here this morning and you think that you, you wouldn't be up to the task of being a witness for Jesus Christ, 
and you think that wouldn't people wouldn't take you seriously, and I suspect that is a big number of us today, then I want to encourage you with words from Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. Because Paul didn't think much of his own abilities. He says, when I came to you, brothers, I did not come with eloquence or superior wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness and fear and with much trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your faith might not rest on men's wisdom but on God's power. We don't go in our own power. We don't have to be eloquent or have really wise words or have it all together because when we are weak, he is strong. When we speak simple words, his spirit is at work in powerful ways. It's his power. It's his spirit working through the word as we share the message of the cross with people. It's for all of us. Secondly, then, the message is one of repentance. I think sometimes we have to be careful in our evangelism, not just to tell people about how amazing Jesus is, about how following him has been the best thing that we've ever done, about how he helps us in our lives, and about how he loves us. Because all of those things, they're true and they're worth saying. We should say them. And Peter certainly says all of that. He talks about how amazing Jesus is, about how David foretold him, about how he did many miraculous things among the people, about how he is the Messiah, the Christ, the hero that the Jews had been waiting for. But Peter doesn't leave it at that and hope that he's just kind of sold this Jesus thing to the crowd. He tells them, that they've sinned by rejecting Jesus. He tells them that they need to repent and be baptized. And so the message is clear. Yes, Jesus is amazing, and God loved us so much that he sent him, and he's done all these wonderful things, and he's done it because he loves us, but the reason that he did it is actually because we all have a big problem, something keeping us from him, something that took him to the cross, and that thing is our sin. And so the way to follow him is to repent. That means to change direction, to turn away from wherever we're going and to turn towards Jesus instead. If you're here this morning and you you don't know Jesus, I'd encourage you to go home and, and read what Peter had to say. The message is one of repentance. That always has to be the ultimate aim of our evangelism. We all have a problem. We all have sinned. We're all separated from God, and he died so that if we turn away from our sin and turn to him and follow him, then we can be saved. And thirdly and finally, being witnesses for Jesus, it involves our effort and the work of the Spirit working in tandem. We see both things at work here in Acts chapter 2. Peter is giving everything. We're told he's urging people. We read at the end of our passage today in verse 40, with many other words he warned them, and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Peter's giving everything. He didn't just say the words we have recorded. With many other words he warned them. But the only reason why his work is effective is because of the Holy Spirit. As people repent, they will receive the Holy Spirit. In the book of Acts, there, there are no conversions recorded until the day of Pentecost when the Spirit shows up. The call, it's a challenging one to each of us to be witnesses for our Lord, but we don't do the task alone. Ultimately, the outcome isn't up to us. We can't convert 
anybody. Only the Spirit can do that. And yet it does require us to work too. That's how God chooses to work, by his Spirit, through the service of his people. John Stott once said that without the Holy Spirit, Christian discipleship would be inconceivable, even impossible. There can be no life without the life giver, no understanding without the spirit of truth, no fellowship without the unity of the spirit, no Christ-likeness of character apart from the spirit's fruit, and no effective witness without his power. As a body without breath is a corpse, so the church without the spirit is dead. But praise be to God, the church is not dead. We have the spirit and we go in his power to reach the lost. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the good news of the gospel that we have to share, that you so loved the world that you sent your Son to die in our place to save us, so that if we turn away from our sins, repent and follow him, he graciously will save us from our sins, that we receive his righteousness and he receives our sins. Lord, thank you for the, the joy of the gospel and the joy of living for Jesus. And thank you that you did not, as you said in, in your word, you did not leave us as orphans, but you have sent the Holy Spirit to help and guide and encourage and empower us. So Lord, help each of us to grasp the nettle of the mission that you have given to us. Help us to be your witnesses wherever we are. Help us to go where you are calling us to go. And Lord, by your Spirit, may we see the reward for our labors for you. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.